0: Hello, everyone. This is Blake Weil, the East Coast Curator-at-Large for No Priscinium, and welcome to No Priscinium's Review Crew. This is episode number 32, and I will be your host. Joining me, we've got a great crew today, starting with...
1: Hi, I'll start. I'm Patrick McLean. I'm the Chicago Curator with No Priscinium.
2: Hi, this is Catherine Yu, Executive Editor of No Priscinium.
3: Hello, this is Ali Murata. I am a New York City correspondent with No
0: Proscenium. We have got a really great show tonight, and it's great to have the three of you. Tonight, we are diving into two things that at first might not seem connected, but I think both of them have this kind of interesting bridge between them in that they both try to attempt to address a sense of the divine in an increasingly secular world. And telling us about the first of those, we have Catherine and Allie on Bottom of the Ocean. Just a little bit of background for people. Bottom of the Ocean is the creation of Andrew Hoepfner, the creator of Whisper Lodge and Houseworld previously. He was known for pioneering work with sensory experience and integrating ASMR into the immersive theater space. Bottom of the Ocean, which we might call BOTO just for convenience sake, is really, in his words, an exploration of ritual and the ways that it fulfills us and enchants us. And for the details, passing this over to Allie and Catherine. Can you tell me a little bit more about what Bottom of the Ocean, I guess more concretely, is?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and definitely go with calling it BOTO because you literally have to say it that way to get in, which I didn't realize because I said B-O-T-O and they were like, what's the password? So you do <laughs> need to call it BOTO. Um, I think you definitely nailed the basics in that description. The piece is definitely centered on rituals and does incorporate that signature ASMR into the immersive experience. Um, this is the, uh, I don't know what number iteration it is, but it's it's open to the public now to buy tickets. And it's at this um, space in Bushwick. And uh, basically it's, a typical guided immersive experience the the audience member is directed on where to go and you travel through various rooms and um the whole show is in a one-on-one style um well mostly depending on which ticket you book i booked the like solo experience but you could do it with a partner as well um and each room is a different experience a different ritual um and then eventually towards the end you come together with everyone for one more ritual
1: and to be uh, i guess a clarifying question with the ticketing then so like is it like a timed entry or is a group does a group of people come together and then they go their separate ways and then come together to have like these singular unique experiences uh just I'm curious to learn how like the actual like audience engagement is working because you said everyone comes together at the end.
3: Mm-hmm. So it's uh, a one time slot entry. Everybody gathers in the lobby space. And then I was actually the first person like pulled away. So I don't know how the rest of it went, but I was called away to the first experience. Um, sorry, my cat's in the background. I don't know if you heard <laughs> her. <laughs> she has a lot to say about it. Um but it's it's definitely run on tracks, because there were moments where I could see other audience members were getting set up for a ritual that I had already experienced. What's interesting, though, is there are only three performers. Um, and there were, I think, like six audience members. So knowing that there are more tracks and performers, like sometimes I was waiting for a moment and it was okay because it was like really aesthetic and there was always something to do. But I was really curious about the tracking system throughout all of it.
2: Yeah, it sounds like they've really built upon what they discovered with Whisper Lodge, which was about the same scale in that there was a room and in that room you would have a one-on-one and an activity and then like you all started together and then they would break everyone up and then you would end together and if I recall correctly the final scene in both Houseworld and Whisper Lodge uh, was a sound bath and I know that you know uh, it, one really strong component of this work uh, these rituals that are present in Boto and Whisper Lodge and Houseworld is is music and the idea of sound and how that kind of like you know it, it a lot of times you don't necessarily think that much about the specifics of ritual design and sound, but it's so well integrated in here, especially in a like, participatory way. Um, so I saw a very early uh, version of Boto when it was just Andrew doing all the rituals in his apartment. And to me, I was struck by the use of sound and music as a through line through all his work and just the kind of care and attention to detail. So maybe you could speak uh, like if that was the same kind of impression you had, Ellie, or if you know different parts of it really stuck out to you.
3: Absolutely. Um, so this iteration of Boto also ends in what I would call a sound bath as well. So that's really nice to know that it's uh, kind of like a bookend for this work. Um, I also noticed the music, um I thought it was really striking. That was actually one of the things I walked away with the most. I was like, "Oh, I want to listen to that again." But <laughs> you know, I don't there's there's not really a way to unless I go see the show again. Right. It's really attention. ephemeral. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a great way to describe it. Um attention to detail was huge. The way that I was interacted with was so thoughtful and I found that uh, so many little things, I like I noticed afterwards when I was thinking about it, that were so um, thoughtfully curated, and that was just really impressive to me.
0: Maybe, maybe you could tell us a little bit more, and I know while avoiding spoilers, this might be a bit difficult, <laughs> but I suppose... What's the working definition of ritual here? Because I know ritual is one of those tricky words that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So how would you phrase what ritual is in this context? What kinds of physical things or emotional exercises are you performing?
3: I think the way you described it is actually really accurate. Uh, It's a lot of different things, (laughs) and they mean something different for different people. Uh, there definitely is some internal work, some introspection in these rituals, which was something I was <laughs> wildly unprepared for. Uh, not okay, in a bad way. I feel way, better just... now. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> it's just like, you know, I haven't like, you know, bared my soul to a stranger in an immersive show in a minute. So to yeah. those muscles up. Like I remember <laughs> going
2: through an exercise and it kind of culminated in – Andrew asking me to tell him a secret I had never told anyone else, but part of the design was you could tell it to him, or I could tell it to this seashell he handed me, Mm -hmm. and I was like, okay, I feel safer with the shell, I'm holding the shell, I'm going to whisper it into the shell, I give it back to him, he nods, and then we like move on to the next thing, and I was like, whoa, that was just a moment that really struck me because I was so unprepared For that Mm -hmm. amount of vulnerability, but at the same time, like if I was gonna confess a deep dark secret, like it's probably like the safest place to do something like that, you know?
3: Exactly. Um, That ritual is still in the performance. Uh, It's adapted a little bit. It's uh, I. It wasn't phrased to me as a deep dark secret. It was a moment that uh, you hurt somebody and a moment you were hurt. So you're asked twice to tell. And you could tell it to the seashell or you could tell it to the performer. Um, And I had the same experience. It was very – like, I don't know. I didn't think – I feel like that's the kind of moment that could be, like, a little woo-woo and people don't take it too seriously. But it was really genuine and sincere, and I was just touched by it. Um, And I felt really connected to, like, the whole process and to the performer in that moment. So it was really
0: nice. So yeah, I think just oh. sort of. Oh, sorry, I was just going to ask real quick, and maybe both of you could answer this. You raised a point that I've been really curious about with Boto, which is that it seems like to some extent it does have these elements that in a lot of other pieces people think of as perhaps a little bit woo woo, a little bit goop. Um. Oh yeah. I mean if you've seen yeah.
2: pictures of some of the costumes, I'm sure if you're not already a fan of Andrew, you're just like what the heck is that? Who wears that kind of thing? <laughs> like on the, on a lot of the imagery on and especially a lot of the description probably falls really flat on paper simply because they're focused so much on that like tactile stuff and the Um, music and sound, that if you're just exposed to the visuals, you're like, okay, cool, glow-in-the-dark tape, whatever. But yeah, it's one part of his work is just really difficult to articulate the sensation of kind of going through it. I mean, Whisper Mm -hmm. Lodge had this problem to a lesser extent, but I I definitely see that as um, just kind of like an ongoing thing because it is so in the moment.
0: So so Mm -hmm maybe you could tell me a little bit sort of about the marriage there because there is this very distinct sort of aquatic, vegetative. stream-like <laughs> so what am I looking at? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. And yeah. I, I almost feel like from everything you're telling me and from what I've heard from other people who have seen it, there's almost this slow process of being entranced And Mm -hmm. made to take what maybe in a different piece would be just sort of, you know, one of these barked commands for introspection a little bit more seriously because it is within this framework evoking, you know, a religious or spiritually agnostic but still spiritual experience.
3: Yeah, very much so. Um, The current iteration actually started, for my track, it started with an induction. So uh, it is phrased in a very serious way. And the idea of transformation is very present. One phrase that stuck with me that I still remember during the induction is that this idea that um, you are always changing and you're changing into yourself. And I was like, mind blown. That, yep, mm -hmm. It just really resonated and seeing the rest of the rituals after that and like kind of forgetting that that happened, you know, because I was so in the moment and then coming back to it afterwards, I was like, oh, I see what you did there and it was so lovely. (laughs)
2: But I mean the whole the whole thing's not serious. I mean from my personal experience going through it and I don't know if this rings true for you Ellie but there are there is joy. Like there are moments of levity and lightheartedness where you're just like I can't stop smiling and then like, you're like you are self-aware that you are doing something that on the outside appears ridiculous but you are also having a blast and I don't know if that's what you felt Ellie. Uh
3: there was one moment I think that was, that was supposed to be that for me, but I almost felt a little bit out of place because the rest of it felt so not serious, but like, oh, I don't know how to describe it, like of a different intention. Um, And like, you know, I shook that off and I, I dug into it and it was, then it became that for me. But at first I was like, oh, this is different. uh, And I had to kind of retrack my mind. Um, there were, yeah, I would say it was some fleeting moments of just, like, big smile, like, burst of joy. Um, but it quickly reverted kind of back to that more subtle, like, playfulness, nostalgia kind of vibe to then slowly morph back into this, like, ritualistic, uh, intentional space.
1: Right. So my sense is that like design
2: wise, they're like trying to modulate so it doesn't feel like it's the same tone the whole time. Right.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, and then the nostalgia is for your past self in that sense of the evolution, right? It's not nostalgia for – they're not trying to produce like a time frame or anything, right? Like it's all self-reflective and introspective, Mm -hmm. right? Okay. Yeah, 100%.
0: So – This is a legitimate question. I do not know this in the slightest. Is there any sort of either plot or frame structure even about sort of the spiritual tradition they have invented for this? Or is it very much just a, what you see is what you get series of initiatory rites?
3: That's a great question. Um, when I described it to someone else after I had seen it, I compared it to that um, Roll the Bones show a couple of years ago where it was just like a gallery of mini experiences and like looking at experience for experience sake. So I'm inclined to say I didn't find a plot other than your own self-transformation.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would say that the vignettes are thematically related and you can find – Perhaps commonalities between the different rituals, but if you're looking for something more straightforward, like a linear path between A to B, they're not necessarily pushing you in that direction.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, and I guess so a thematically consistent new pseudo religious experience, but not necessarily (laughs) one that invents its own cosmology.
3: Yeah, because the like the lore of it is really unclear. Uh, your pre- uh, My experience was that I was presented with things as they came and I just, you know, chose to accept them. Um, some people might have thought it was bizarre, but it's one of those moments where it's like you got to be kind of like a chaotic neutral to get on board with it, I think.
2: Chaotic neutral is exactly the right term, I think. Um, It's funny that you mentioned that because Houseworld was a sandbox open exploration world where there were different characters in different rooms and it was also sometimes hard to figure out how the guru in the bathtub related to the monster in the basement, related to the angry chef in the kitchen, etc. And then I see elements of Houseworld being married with the more ritualistic elements of Whisper Lodge Plus the fact that there is this fantastic space that Andrew and the team have slowly renovated for many, many months, essentially cleaning out like a lot of trash and asbestos to create the right environment to really bring this artistic vision to life. So, yeah, I see I see the roots of Boto in a lot of the other work that I've experienced from this same creator.
3: I think, yeah, that tracks for my experience with Whisper Lodge, too. Um, And to me, that just says, like, this is a really uh, thoughtfully developing artist. And like, as someone who's curating their work and growing their work, uh, it just makes a lot of sense.
0: That is great. I am incredibly jealous of both of you, (laughs) but especially you, Catherine, because you got to see this from the beginning and you get to see the growth and change here. and. No going back in time and seeing the beta version, but I am I am taking a lot of comfort in the fact that hopefully I can make the trip up to New York myself soon to journey to the bottom of the ocean. Any sort of closing thoughts on Boto? Anything that you feel sort of sums up your experience in that world?
3: Um, I have a question for Catherine about your original experience with it. What was the environment like or was it just really focused on the rituals at that moment
2: it was pretty bare Uh, you could tell the seeds of ideas uh he i if i recall correctly andrew put up a lot of sheets to try to like subdivide um i think it was like a spare bedroom his roommate had moved out he tried to convert that into more of a show space um, and so, you know, you might go under like a sheet tent and there'd be a couple of balloons. And that was the beginning of like a much bigger idea. So you you could see
3: the seeds of that there. Mm, that's really interesting. Uh, I also climbed into a tent filled with balloons. So there you go. Yeah. So the, the dreams came
2: true. Uh, I do want to mention <laughs> that they've added weekday matinees. And they are starting a lottery for, um, you know, to provide more affordable tickets for folks. So if you want to go check that out, it's Boto.nyc. N-Y-C.
0: Well, you know that I am going to be signing up for it. And speaking of ritual, I got to ask you, Patrick, what do you think about throwing oranges at the wall and then stabbing your friend with a dessert fork?
1: Uh, I'm for one of those things, but I'm going to leave it to all of you to wonder which one of those I enjoy the most.
0: And for those of you who have not read the book, that is our transition into our next subject tonight. Turn your dreams into art lessons in psycho magic from the San Francisco underground, a book by caveat magister. Now caveat magister is the nom de playa, Of Benjamin Walks. He is an author, an academic, a cultural critic. He is the poet, sorry, not poet, philosopher laureate of Burning Man. Big difference. (laughs) Big difference. Um, Although he's quite poetic. I enjoyed his writing quite a bit. Um, Even if I'm a bit more mixed on his ideas, but we'll get to that. And he is also the chair of the San Francisco Institute for the Possible. And his new book uh, is an exploration of psychomagic, uh, which is a very complex, very esoteric subject, but can basically be simplified to some extent to a way of applying Jungian psychology to try to create narratively fulfilling experiences with that feel personal, when maybe you don't necessarily know all too much about your audience. Um, And both me and Patrick dug into that this week. So Patrick, I'm going to let you open this one up.
1: Uh, Yes. A little
0: bit about the book.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think uh, to help also make this conversation a little more digestible is the book is actually framed in three different parts. Um, And there's essentially section one, who we are and what we're looking for. Section two, how we do it and then section three psycho magic and society and i think that's kind of helpful because the first part is essentially a high level kind of personalized accounting of the history of the san francisco underground art scene um in regards to like how it kind of started and to uh blake to your point in regards to what the kind of goal was. And I think this personally for me was the strongest section of the book. This was the part that I kind of dug the most and found the most captivating because uh, of two reasons. The first being what you talked about of this exploration into the softer sciences for a really bad encompassing term of looking to be like, Art is something magical, like this kind of spiritual element that can be tapped into and opened if the right circumstances can occur, whether those are purely kind of coincidental about how life comes together or if they can be manufactured and designed to instigate that to occur. Because uh, having gone to uh, an arts program, I feel like a lot of the time, especially for me for writing, you know, they begin very clinically. A lot of conversations I think about creating art, and if anyone has a different perspective, please interrupt me. But like, it's a lot of starting off of going like, A wants something from B. And then it's like, okay, well, now A wants something from B, but B won't give it. And it's a lot of very kind of, technical it, it's creating a a, a a way to work through being creative like a step-by-step process like you know we see these books when you go to the writing section and it's like how to write a novel how to write a play whatever and they get very kind of technical in that sense and I feel in regards to this I really dug at getting into taking away from the technique of it all but focusing on, like, kind of just more of the kind of magical, spiritual, emotional sense that's needed to re- make art. I
0: definitely agree with you there. And I definitely agree that it was the strongest part of the book for me. I really like the ways that it really fulfilled sort of the promise of the title in its own way, in that it was sort of about applying these theatrical techniques that were born in this underground art scene to your day-to-day life um there is this idea it keeps coming back to that i really loved of blending metaphor and literal interpretation when it comes to magic that we we can't go back all the way to superstition that way lies madness uh we all read carl sagan's the demon haunted world you know we we don't want to do that again but that we are spiritual creatures with spiritual needs, and allowing yourself belief to a point can be a practical and rational decision, and and that felt like something I could bring with me to my day to day life, along with some of sort of these very practical ideas on ritual. Um, it was very funny. You, both of you, uh, Catherine, Ali, talked about the tent. Uh, one of the things he keeps bringing up is the the need to create a border for your ritual that borders create a sense of separation from the mundane and the profane for a sacred experience to occur.
1: Yeah. And I, and it was really, I think that was a strong part of this section. Additionally, the other thing I really kind of dug and he makes it very clear that this is not the intention of the book, but I think overall this is actually one of the successes of it from beginning to end is that, uh, Ali, Catherine, do either of you know anything about the San Francisco Underground other than maybe making a, a joke in regards to how, oh, that's where people go to do crazy goofy stuff and get in trouble?
3: Uh, pretty limited over here.
2: <laughs> uh, I do follow the artistic explorations of people like Danielle Baskin or um, the folks who had been doing the erstwhile philatelic society, which was an outgrowth of the Jejun Institute. So Uh probably a little bit more on the ARG scene because I view that as a very, to me at least, um, Jejun and latitude and all that feels uniquely San Franciscan to me, at least.
0: Catherine, I, I love that you brought that up because it Uh may be the perfect transition. I think you may have just accidentally stepped on, a little bit of a landmine because we're going to get to in part three uh, Magister's opinions on the Latitude Society, which are strong. Um,
1: yeah. And before we get into that, I just will say in that sense, like I, I knew I was with you, Ali. I knew, I, I know nothing. Uh, uh, I guess I do know it now because I've read the book, but, um, but like, it was really Engaging to learn that history and to be introduced to players and ideas that, you know, we've kind of heard about, engaged like that. To just really have it be documented for historical purposes, I thought was a really a, a big boon to this book. And uh, I, I always love learning new things. So I, I really appreciated that in part one as well.
0: Transitioning a little bit, part two is is sort of where the book lost me, I'm not going to lie. I know I mentioned, and you mentioned a little bit as well, Patrick, that there are these very practical elements to the book, even if it isn't that sort of rote scientific didactic approach to art. You know, it has practical advice. And part two is really where the book tries to give the majority of its practical advice on creating worthwhile experiences as Caveat Magister sees them. Uh, On the one hand, he comes up with some advice that I think is good to an extent. Um, He talks a lot about how it's good to try to keep your experiences as grounded in nonfiction as possible. The less people have to pretend to do something and the more they can actually do it, the more engaged they're going to feel the less of a barrier suspension of disbelief is going to provide.
1: Yeah. And additionally with that, like providing them in those moments in their real lives, like dangerous choices in the sense of like really pushing that into them and being like in regards to this is a perfect thing with Catherine was talking about and with Ali, where they talked about the seashell and how dramatically different that question changed between the productions, but nevertheless trying to ensure that there's a moment of decision where people maybe have to uh, act against their best interest, or maybe, you know, instead of like being like, Oh, you know, this is today I'm going to, you know, quit my job and, you know, change my life around than we never do, creating those moments that guarantee that question will come up, but then also hopefully elevate that person out of their rut into a, a version of themselves or discovering something about themselves. And there's some practical examples and kind of direction there too.
2: Wow. That sounds really um, similar to Ida Benedetto's work. Uh, patterns of transformation and risk, I believe she, that was her master's thesis where she studied people who went on wilderness trips and studied funerals and studied sex parties to try to like bring this framework forward in terms of why risk is required for transformation and kind of what the conditions are necessary in order to create it. So it seems like a very similar vibe here.
0: There, there's definitely a similar vibe. And and Risk, I can appreciate. You know, I'll, on the one hand, I know the reputation that NoPro has, that, you know, some people on the more extreme side of things can accuse us of being scolds out to, you know, restrict everyone's fun by our definitions of safety. But But consent is kind of where I really draw the line. And a lot of the artistic examples that he draws in this chapter, are not things that either the audience or those necessarily drawn into the audience either did consent to or have the capacity to consent to. Um, One example that he really cheerleads is a funeral for a friend of his where they tied old pianos to concrete uh, supports of a major car bridge in San Francisco, set those pianos on fire so that there were flames all around the bridge, and then launched her ashes as sort of a confetti rain over those crossing the bridge. And, you know, on the one hand, very provocative, very loud. On the other hand, oh my God, that's arson, Ken can you really justify that no matter how good the art is? And this is where I just started to get more and more frustrated with sort of this, this attitude that comes in of, Oh, transformation is so worth it that all sacrifices are justifiable.
1: Well, and then there's a, this is my, thought on it but there's sometimes even with even in that example and others where it's like well as long as you don't get caught breaking the law and i mean in this for that highway example like long as you don't get caught having started a massive fire under a, a under a freeway so when people are driving there it looks like they're driving through hell uh with the flames coming up over the barriers you're fine and i think this is that uh, uh, this is the the problem, the struggle I have with this is that he keeps coming back to examples, and then he goes. He, he provides very dangerous or very kind of off putting examples, and then goes. But don't do that. It was it was highly wrong. It was illegal. We shouldn't have never have done it. But then authors know, for lack of a better words, safer or kind of comfortable options. Like it's, it's always in the extremes and he always then goes, well, you shouldn't do that. I can't believe we got away with it. That's definitely dangerous things to do. So it kind of undermines the the point that he's trying to make that like, there's really good ideas and really strong potential ways to tap into some of them and to live them. But the examples being provided are not great examples. They're they're dangerous examples, and I wonder if this book could have, this section of the book could have been much stronger if the examples were more varied or they were had other things in mind and things like that. Right? Like there was other ways to to simplify this behavior.
0: I am I am going to be a little bit
1: harsher than you. Um, I
0: personally think Magister is a great writer and so i i found the book incredibly digestible i found it flowed well and so part of me is reluctant to give him that little credit that you know that he he weakened his position there and there's one thing that really keeps me from doing that he brings up well you know it doesn't have to be physical danger that there there must be risk and there must be danger in a work for it to be transformative and meaningful but it can be emotional danger as well. And the piece that he puts in contrast to that freeway piece is a bondage art piece in which uh, I'm not, I saw a horror movie about this once with Liam Neeson, so forgive me for knowing the details, but I'm not, it was a piece in which people were suspended from hooks from the ceiling And between the two hooks, kind of crossing the arc of their spine, they had strings pulled taut, and then they had musicians bowing those strings as music to provide a concert for onlookers, uh, very literally playing these people as instruments. And he presents this as an equal emotional risk to the physical risk of, Setting large fires in public spaces in California, which you know, if, if you know your fire history of California, is definitely pretty dangerous. And I think there's almost an intent to kind of flatten the to flatten the idea of danger to to say, well, these two things are comparable. So if you don't find if you don't find it scary or objectionable to potentially emotionally traumatize someone by exposing them to this controversial and, you know, macabre erotica, then I don't see why you would find it objectionable that I set fires under a bridge.
1: Yeah. It's, I don't, I don't disagree in that sense because then there's also another part where um, whether this happened or not is unclear. Uh, but he provides an example of like, you know, someone's working in a restaurant as a host and, you know, they call the name, the next name to call is Abraham Lincoln. And they're like, okay, whatever. And the person calls Abraham Lincoln party. And then not one, but two different people dressed as Abraham Lincoln come up and then begin to argue about which Abraham Lincoln party is up and which table is ready And while he does constantly as well point out, like, if you do things in public that are dangerous or people might not like, you have to respect that they are not going to be happy and they will react poorly. Ultimately, like that example of what the Abraham Lincoln's, I'm like, how is this different from what the impractical jokers or some people like that do on hidden camera shows? Uh, and, and it really deflated the like all of the, the the talk of magic and like going emotionally inward and trying to be take greater risks. I think, uh, because I think risk would have been a better uh, word choice than dangerous. Because I agree with you, Blake, that dangerous is poorly used uh or is used too often to describe too many things in this book and it really causes some problems where I think you clearly reacted and rightfully so to be like these are all unacceptable where I think we could have maybe taken an extra second to articulate some of these uh arguments and details and things like that
3: I think what I'm hearing because I haven't read this obviously but like is it fair to say that it's also getting at shock factor over danger like i i think i think i agree with you that it danger doesn't feel like it's the right word
0: well there's there's pretty legitimate danger there this book contains spelunking accidents rotting viscera being sprayed over an audience it contains you know the outright physical danger of being out on the playa which he acknowledges you know you go to burning man you risk potentially dying
1: but to alice's point he does constantly i feel while he provides those examples the examples that he holds up the most are always ones that come down to uh engaging like one-on-one he he has especially in the later half even more into part three he talks about the most engaging experiences being ones of random connections with people that he happens to have the right thing or the right knowledge or right phrase. And it's this psycho magical moment where, you know, it seems like you're getting to go on a quest and stuff like that. And I think uh, to Ali, to your point, I think it's into Blake, like, I think it's like they're mashed together. They're just poorly, it's just a poorly constructed. Section I think in regards to the there's too many too big ideas that are freely combined or flow into each other too easily when there could have maybe been a more specific separation and clear delineation between the two because like the lessons begin to blur together to a certain point.
0: Catherine, may I ask you to repeat once more who it was who was writing about the necessity of risk for transformation?
2: Yes. So that's Ida Benedetto. I believe the website is patternsoftransformation.com. And in her framework, she does talk about creating a magic circle, but also checking in with the participant at the end about the transformation, how they're feeling about it. And so I think, you know, putting safety and consent is at the center of her work. And Because she studied such a broad range of experiences, it's not focused purely on physical risk, but also social risk and emotional risk from the kind of social encounters that you might have at a sex party or at a funeral. And I think that's probably a more balanced way to look at these seemingly disparate activities and recognize the types of transformation and risk and circumstances that can apply to kind of
1: the experience design as a whole. And I think he does a really good job of reminding that people have their own agency. And if they won't want to do this, that's fine. Or if they want to get upset with you, that's their right. But, Catherine, to that point, the book does lack any kind of clear instruction on how to de-escalate or to ensure that an audience member who literally turns a street corner to find themselves in this magic wonderland as the performers and the creators have taken over a street with no permission from anyone, how the audience can uh, elect to... In that example, of course, I can just keep walking around. But in some of those other examples we've talked about, there's no clear way to, or there's nothing ensuring that their safety is, they have the ability to back out, I guess.
0: So there's there's a metaphor that he keeps coming back to that I just kind of want to throw out to everyone in the group and ask what your take is on it before we move to part three. He keeps asking the reader to imagine the greatest ride at disney world not an actual ride but in your mind's eye what could the greatest possible ride at disney world be and then he states that well no matter how great it is it will never be as interesting or exciting or as life-changing as breaking into disney world thoughts
3: Woo! <laughs> wow yeah i don't know about
0: that it's to me it's one of those phrases that's so false it isn't even incorrect yes i agree it's probably more exciting and life-changing
3: for a
2: certain person
0: that's not (laughs) like breaking and entering isn't
3: for everybody
0: (laughs) And, and i guess that just kind of strikes me generally with One of the problems here is that I think that everyone deserves some transformation. And even if you're not going to get as much transformation out of the greatest Disney World ride in all possible worlds, maybe you could build a Disney ride that gives people a little bit of transformation and they don't have to sacrifice their whole lives for it by, you know setting
2: things on fire, breaking and entering, trespassing. I mean, yeah, but exactly. yeah. people aren't going <laughs> no. to Disneyland for transformation. So I guess I have to ask, who who is he talking to? Who is the audience for this, right? Because I feel yes. like the audience is a very specific counter-cultural subset of artists and rule-breakers who have a certain amount of privilege. Yes.
0: So oh, burners. <laughs> Oh, oh boy. So that's where we kind of find a really neat segue into uh, part three, which he opens with a glowing description of how much he adored uh, the Zhejun Institute and how much he absolutely detested the Latitude Society to the point where using that not entirely literal, not entirely Metaphorical framework he set up earlier, he describes them as an evil cabal of art priests dedicated to colonizing the minds of humanity.
1: Do we want to take a second to first also explain the two, I suppose? That might be helpful for a few people <laughs> that, out there. <laughs> that probably would be helpful. For those,
0: for those of you not in the know, uh, the Shijun Institute was a really groundbreaking ARG in which people could just sort of stumble across a war between a strange but enchanting and whimsical but maybe evil uh, organization the titular institute, and the resistance trying to oppose them. And this would lead people to real office buildings and finding bizarre pirate radio stations and treasure hunts. The Latitude Society was a later attempt to create a more scalable, more sustainable version of that uh, that ended up, through its framework of setting up a secret society, it ran into a lot of recruitment issues, and funding fell apart, and it is one of those sadly missed things. A lot of people who weren't in San Francisco while it was running kick themselves for not being able to participate in.
2: Yeah, my impression yeah, of I- it was more of, it, uh, of a members club, a private club, with elements of a startup, because they were trying to do... Um, more permanent investment that way. And so there was a thing about being invited and you could only be invited if someone who was already in the club invited you. So there was an air of exclusivity around it, whereas the previous project had been much more open and openly discoverable.
1: And and the Latitude Society also was big on spectacle uh, in in the Aristotle sense of, you know, you know, buildings were technological, had a lot of lights and sounds and were, you know, very staged environments within buildings and things like that, which is creates a high overhead, you know, to, to manage all of that, which was a, a, another component because they, they needed members to join so they could pay for all of it.
0: So I I guess this is all in service of articulating the complaints of part three and, and part three, which was titled I believe what was it titled again psychomagic and
1: society uh yes psychomagic and society it,
0: it could alternately be titled gripes uh, part 3 is is his gripes section uh, and on the one hand it's it's legitimately kind of fascinating it's the section that frustrated me the most even if it wasn't the section that made me the most angry because he is describing fairly authentically some of the frustration of homogeneity emerging within participatory arts. And, you know, if I say the words immersive Van Gogh, I bet so many of our listeners are going to shudder just thinking about sort of the plague of copycats and lazy cash grabs that have kind of become synonymous for a lot of lay people with an art form that we are very invested in. But then I get very frustrated because he takes that a step further. And he says that all, you know, narrative driven, fiction driven, or for-profit seemingly Immersive art is just a watering down of this near religious art form that was pioneered in San Francisco, and now it's dead and it's never
1: coming back. Right, and, it's and he's taking a credit very for it.
0: Dramatic section,
1: right? Like it's both like going the end is um, the end is here, we're over, but nothing that comes after us was possible without us. Um, immersive theater, in, in, even in the broadest sense, like even what Ali and Catherine you saw, that is only possible because of the San Francisco undergrounds. And so it's like, okay, well we're over and done, but you know you owe it all to us. So it it, it created kind of a very frustrating thing. And I, there's not, I don't know, Blake. I'm not sure if you have many other thoughts in the section other than that, and just in a very high level, the like, New York art you- scene
2: would like a word.
0: <laughs> oh well he, he mentions the New York art scene. I was gonna to say talk about um what was that bar in the water tower that everyone loved? Also
2: co-created oh, by the 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 Night Heron. Heron. Also co-created by Heron. Ida Benedetto and with a very specific design philosophy in that once you went, you could never go back, but you could gift it to someone else. Like core to her approach to experience design is gifting it, making sure that the thing that you treasure can be shared to someone, which is why she published a lot of her research is because she wanted to empower others to make transformational experiences.
0: It's so funny you say that because... Magister spends so much of the third part of this book talking about the good reason that so many of these societies are secret and so much of this art is inaccessible is to protect it from the forces that would destroy it. And there is almost a selfishness of spirit in this section that really gets to me and really just kind of ticks me off. And I guess the one other big picture thing in this section that it is just sort of where, you know, I was teetering between part one and part two, this was going to be the tiebreaker, and the book ultimately lost me, is this idea of scalability. You know, he... The book presents changing someone's life as the ultimate good you can do, as this really virtuous act to aspire to. But... It's He repeats over and over how unconcerned with scalability he is and how the reason for the artistic failures of the Latitude Society, which, remember, are an evil cabal of priests in his definition here, is their attempts at scale brought on by respectability politics and capitalism and vanity. You're not... You're going to be doing something great for your your friends by creating fun, small moments of ritual for them. That thing with the oranges and the stabbing your friend in the arm with a fork that we were joking about earlier, that was a spur-of-the-moment ritual he created for a friend that really defines sort of a fun little consensual psychomagical experience. But you're just not going to change that much that way. In the grand scheme of things, doing fun art for your friends and associates might be validating and worthwhile for you, but you can't position yourself as the lever on which the world moves by doing that.
1: So so I guess in that sense, uh, uh, now that you've put this book down and you have had your moment, uh, if you were to pick up another book, Blake, what would it be? Like? <laughs>
0: I'm not... First, let me say, however (laughs) harsh I'm being, and trust me, I know I'm being harsh, um, I think it's worth the read. I disagree strongly with a lot of its points, but I think for people trying to mix the secular and a sense of the divine, this provides a really interesting philosophical framework here. And it also provides, as you so aptly put, a really valuable, if subjective, history of an art scene not a lot of people are that intimately familiar with. However, this is as good a time as any to announce uh, we're starting a book club! That's right, everybody. This was such a fun little experiment, reading this together and chatting it over and then coming on the air to argue about what we thought of it, that we've decided that it would be fun to invite all of you along. And so for... The No Pro Book Club, we're going to be alternating between books like this, which talk a lot about theory of immersive work and practical advice in constructing it and its history, and the fiction that has either highly influenced immersive work or has been highly influenced by immersive work. So next month, because we just did one of these theory books, we're starting off with one of the fun bits of fiction. And we are going with Neal Stephenson's Snow Crash. You have heard all about the metaverse, I'm sure, in the news, on your feeds, potentially with the spamming of the name change whenever you boot up the Facebook app. But now you get to see where that term and where that concept started to percolate and maybe start to question whether it's such a good idea that we're building it after all. So how this is going to work...
2: How often do you boot up the Facebook app? I'm just curious.
0: <laughs> so my my phone is maybe five to six years old, so oh, my app's God. a lot. Okay so, okay, so it runs on so Steam. It,
1: Got it.
3: Yeah, I guess that tracks with the Facebook. So. The Facebook, uh,
0: just like an old. <laughs> yeah, I I know I'm ancient. Uh, we better wrap this up before I turn to dust and blow away in the wind. So. How this is going to work is you all have until March 15th. That is going to be a Tuesday to finish up Snow Crash. I know I'm going to be starting it tomorrow. Then we are going to have an opportunity for everyone to have a little literary salon in the No Pro Discord pop on in, share your thoughts, chit chat that evening. We'll, we will have an exact time on that evening of the 15th closer to the date, but come in, discuss the book, share your thoughts, talk it over. Uh, staff is going to be there too, myself included. And then review crew after that. If we like your take, it might make it on the air with credit to you. Of course, uh, So we would love to have you along for this adventure. Looking forward to talking it over with you. And hey, if you end up also reading Turn Your Life Into Art, feel free to shoot us a buzz as well. We'd love to hear your thoughts.
1: Yes. And thank you so much, Blake, for hosting. And we really appreciate it. made my life easier because I was going to be the one who had to do otherwise. Uh, and I just wanted to take a quick second to say, uh, No Proscenium is a labor of love. Everyone on staff who you uh, heard on the podcast and the people who write articles and review shows are all volunteers. You can support this work by donating to the No Proscenium Patreon. Uh, even, uh, you know, $1, 2 or $5, that such a small amount makes a big difference to us. And if you're rejo- enjoying Review Crew or the no proscenium podcast you can also support us by leaving a five-star review on apple Podcasts, spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts thanks so much
0: once again it has been such a pleasure to have you guys chatting over immersive theater with me tonight and it's been such a pleasure having all you out in the audience listening so signing off this is blake this is patrick
3: this is katherine this is allie
0: Have a nice night, everyone.